Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Billionaire Elon Musk shook up the social media world by announcing his intention to buy Twitter, but if he's successful, what would that really change? The question connects to powerful issues of free speech and expression. We're going to discuss all of them with Washington Post reporter Will O'Ramus. We'll also get an update on Washington from Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin. That's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. as always, thanks for tuning in. There is an awful lot for the Democratic Party to be working on these days. The war in Ukraine is persisting, threatening our global order, increasing prices, and straining already strained supply chains. The ability for women to get abortions is likely to become a lot more difficult, if not outright illegal, in many states in our country. And even though Democrats have injected a lot of cash into the economy, Inflation has really dampened the positive effects, making everything a lot more expensive. It's all to say that it appears Democrats have a pretty big uphill climb ahead of them into the midterm elections in November. Here to talk about all these topics swirling in Washington and what Democrats are planning to do to win in November is Congresswoman of the 8th District in Michigan, Alyssa Slotkin. Congresswoman Slotkin, uh, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks for having me. So people are not really getting very far with their dollars, as I said, because of inflation. Uh, Talk about what you're working on to lower gas and food prices and just to make things more affordable for everybody. Yeah, well, obviously the gas price is the one that that is uh, hitting people particularly hard, particularly in like my district where a lot of people drive 40 miles one way to work. But it also underpins why so many other prices are going up because that watermelon or whatever you want to buy at the grocery store had to be transported there and it costs more money. So it really is, um, you know, kind of at the heart of, of lots and lots of things, of price hikes. I think on the oil issue in particular, if there were a silver bullet, uh, people would have fired it. So there's got to be a combination of things that, that go to work. One is I'm a big believer in reopening the natural, uh, the, the strategic reserve that we have in the United States here. So we literally maintain a reserve. We can open it up. We have done it a little bit. We can do it again. It's, again, not perfect, but it's something that helps. Um, certainly, the oil companies are making record profits, uh, both American oil companies, but frankly, our Middle Eastern allies have never been making more money off of the price of gas. So just, uh, I think, bringing, certainly bringing in those companies, uh, the American ones where we have more uh, of a sway and having a frank conversation about what it means that they're making record profits while people are suffering, I think is an important thing for the White House to be doing. We're literally looking at that from a legislative perspective in the next week or so but then putting more pressure on the Saudis and others to do the same thing. That takes a firm hand um, in diplomacy. It takes a lot of uh, uh, transactional conversations, frankly, to have with those countries. I've seen those in real time, so we need to have more of those. And then, frankly, particularly for the market, I mean, being open uh, to doing what we need to do to up production in the United States and up refining in the United States. And that doesn't mean any one of those things is perfect, but it, we should be caught trying and trying all of these things regularly, constantly, until we get some normalcy on that price. So what are the leverage points, I guess, for Congress in particular when you're dealing with companies, and it's not just oil companies that are reporting uh, incredible profits. Uh, lots of different companies are, are doing quite well, even as uh, Americans are, you know, stretching their dollars further than than they have in in recent memory. What what can Congress do about that? I mean, uh, we live in a capitalist society where you're allowed to make money off of people, even when they're suffering. 
Yeah. And look, I think we want our companies to do well, our American companies to succeed. And we know a lot of these companies lost a lot of money during COVID and they're trying to make that up. And we understand that. There's nothing wrong with making good money. Um, There is something wrong if there's price gouging. A bunch of states across the country, including Michigan, have price gouging laws. We don't want to have one at the federal level, and that's being debated. I don't know where, frankly, it's going to end up, but I think that's the conversation. Is There's a different standard between making good profits, making good money, succeeding as a business, which is what we want for every business, and price gouging, particularly because you're in a moment of opportunity. So Michigan has those laws. It's the same concept at the federal level that's being considered. Mm. So I want to switch subjects here and talk about the leaked uh, draft opinion uh, from the Supreme Court that would uh, not only overturn Roe v. Wade, but really assault the the very idea of unenumerated rights, uh, the idea that, that, that privacy protections are somehow um, you know, enshrined in our Constitution. First, just to get your reaction to that draft opinion, um, and then talk about what the landscape will look like afterward. Uh, What will the landscape in Congress look like? What will the landscape look like in states like Michigan, where we do have this uh, very old law in the books that uh, pretty much outright bans abortion? A court recently said uh, that it believes that will will be overturned. So uh, there's a, there's a, a block on that law. But it's a fight that we're going to have here, I think, and uh, I, I guess I'm not certain how it how it turns out. Yeah, I don't think anyone's certain because it's it's in the courts. But I, I mean, I think the 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 straight, clear answer is that watching, you know, seeing that leaked opinion, I think for me and for a lot of people was just very difficult to to see. And knowing that Michigan has this 1931 law on the books where you literally can't get an abortion for anything other than what seems like imminent death of the mother. So rape or incest mm-hmm. or even just, you know, you're about to go through chemotherapy and you get pregnant. Um, there, there are a bunch of scenarios, e- even extreme scenarios that wouldn't be covered and allowed in Michigan. And then it makes it a felony and providers can literally go to jail for four years for performing an abortion. So it, it will absolutely scare everybody out of, of that business. Um, so I, I think, you know, we do have some sort of temporary postponement right now, but I don't think anyone thinks that this is decided and it's final and we have to assume that that law will still be on the books. Certainly our legislature um, has continued to keep it on the books and, and even made it try to make it stronger, um, many members of our, the Michigan Senate. Um, and, you know, I think for me, I, for, you know, the, the, my views on this are encapsulated in a conversation I had from the Detroit airport to Washington last week. Um, I sat next to two women who struck up a conversation with me. They knew I was a congresswoman. Both of them said very clearly that they were pro-life, um, both of them very Catholic and very devout. Mm. Um, they understood what a sensitive topic this was, no matter what you uh, feel about it, and I certainly feel that. Um, but uh, it was interesting. One woman said, look, I'm, I'm pro-life, I'm Catholic, I could never personally have an abortion. Then one next to me, uh, closest to me, said, I am pro-life. I'm Catholic. I could, I could, I, I could never have an abortion except that I did because I was in the middle of a miscarriage and my body wasn't responding well, and I had what could technically be called a miscarriage. Mm. And I mean, a, an abortion. And both of them said that no matter what they felt, they would never impose their views on anybody else. And I think to me, it's an issue of personal freedom. If you believe in personal freedom and keeping the government out of your choices. You have to be clear about that, whether you have the same opinion as someone else or not. And I think a lot of people who profess the importance of personal freedom are the exact ones who have turned around and are trying to curb the personal freedom of other people. So um, uh, people have the right to make choices. And I, I, I wish we had a bit more of, a, of an understanding about that. But um, I, what's frustrating me is that um, we, we don't have a good plan at the federal level, and we have to acknowledge that. Um, in Michigan, there's a plan. It's a legal options to court cases and a petition drive. Um, and from what I see, Michigan is one of the only places that has a plan. At the federal level, um, I've been, frankly, uh, disappointed to see that there isn't um, a plan in place since we know this is coming. But there are certainly lots of folks now working on what we can legally do. And, um, you know, obviously we passed a law here in the House. Um, it didn't succeed in the Senate to codify 
just what we had mm-hmm. for the past 50 years, what our grandmothers had. Um, but um, it's coming, and uh, I know that people are scrambling to try to figure out not just what we do from a, a sort of raise your voice perspective, but from a concrete planning perspective, a legal perspective. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I think that's a nice way to start talking about the Democratic strategy for the fall. Uh, let's say this opinion comes out at the end of the Supreme Court term, which is uh, somewhere around the end of June. That's uh, that's about five months before voters are going to go to the polls. What What's the Democratic message this fall to hold the House and the Senate, uh, which clearly are, are uh, some of the goals? Um, and what what role does abortion, which has um, not been much of a wedge issue for Democrats for so long because the, the, the law has been pretty settled, um, how does it fit into that that narrative? What what do Democrats say to voters going into these uh, these midterms? Yeah, I mean, I you know, I don't know. Certainly for me, as someone who's a Democrat who represents a, a Republican district, um, there is no like, let's all have the same message across the country and think that that's going to work. I, Michigan is a very independently minded place. Um, people often still, thank God, pick the person over the party. Um, I think that's a good thing. And so I, for me, local issues, jobs and the economy are always going to be front and center. Um, in terms of how uh, the, the Roe decision uh, impacts the elections, it is a long way away. And I think we always get in this, um, you know, this like loop of trying to predict what's going to happen. And if there's one thing I know for sure in my very short time in elected uh, uh, politics is that um, things people, their attention span is short. And so it's going to be really important um, for people to, to make choices and mobilize and, and get engaged and make decisions about uh, how, what they want to do to contribute. And I think um, first and foremost, we, we can say with certainty that while we may have thought that rights that we had for 50 years are just going to stay rights for the next 50 years, mm. I don't think we can say that. And that's one thing about choice, but also about voting rights and a bunch of other things related to the foundation of democracy. Yeah. Um, it doesn't just stay stagnant. You yeah. have to defend them. And there's lots of people who have lots of plans to take them away. Yeah. Um, and uh, so for me, I can't predict what's going to be like the signature issue because it's it's far away. And, and every year people like to believe polling. And every year we say, oh, the polling was so wrong. <laughs> um, so somehow still believe it. So, I, you know, I, I, I can't speak to to what that one thing will be. I just know that if you sit still and you just think that everything's going to be fine in this democracy that we fought for and we love, um, we're not going to have the same rights that our parents and grandparents had. Yeah, yeah. I'm talking with uh, Representative Alyssa Slotkin. She's a Democratic congresswoman who represents Michigan's 8th Congressional District. Um, before we uh, before we have to let you go, uh, Congresswoman, I, I do want to talk about, uh, about Ukraine and the work that you've been doing um, to make sure that uh, people fleeing Ukraine have a place to go uh, here in in the United States. This is an issue that that you have really sort of uh, taken the lead on, and and it clearly means a lot to you personally. Um, uh, Talk about where we are with all of that. Well, obviously, the war in Ukraine continues, and um, it's just been amazing, I guess, for me as a longtime national security person to watch how successful the Ukrainians have been. Uh, the combination of their will to fight uh, with weapons and materiel from the United States and money from lots of places, um, and just frankly, creativity against an old Soviet-style army just has been more successful than I think anyone could have predicted. Um, and it's I'm genuinely enjoying watching the Russian army fail at the basic things like logistics. Um, I, I do think, though, that you know Ukraine has a disproportionate effect on, again, things like world prices, the price of food. They're a huge producer of wheat. They can't get that wheat out of their ports. Uh, Farmers are bravely planting there. I've seen pictures. People have texted me. Farmers in Ukraine have gotten a good chunk of their wheat in the ground, the seeds in the ground, by wearing, like, body body armor and helmets as they ride on their tractors because they're in active war zones. So there's some pretty amazing stuff going on. But we, we need now to understand kind of how this ends. And it ends when the Russians feel pain enough for them to say our goals have been so shrunk 
that we're ready to take any off-ramp to get out of here, pretend to declare victory, um, and get out. And I think that's what the conversation has shifted to. Um, in the meantime, uh, you know, I, it's the most bipartisan issue I've worked on in Congress in my three and a half years here, mm-hmm. which is a good thing. National security should be bipartisan. Um, and I know that we're all watching to understand, you know, what more we can do to make Russia feel the pain from their decision to invade a Democratic neighbor. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Alyssa Slotkin, Democratic Congresswoman who represents Michigan's 8th Congressional District. Always great to catch up with you. Thanks so much for joining us here on Detroit Today. Thanks for having me. Coming up, we are going to talk about what it would mean if Elon Musk, by some measures the richest man in the world, bought Twitter. We're going to talk about how that connects to the nature of free speech and expression on the Internet. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. WDET is your place for open dialogue. The music you love. Real news and in-depth analysis. And cultural experiences. The sound of Detroit. 1019 WDET is your public radio station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Will he or won't he? Elon Musk, by some measures, the richest man in the world, says he wants to buy Twitter, this amazing connective platform that so many of us use for everything from socializing to work to advocacy. But Musk's offer of $44 billion for something that doesn't really have clear value is seeming less likely these days. And that has left us with a lot of questions. Why would Musk care in the first place about buying Twitter? And what would happen if he did buy it? Does all of this even matter that much at all? This whole thing has also left a lot of journalists like me and engaged citizens online wondering what spaces we should be using to have nuanced political conversations online. Think of the debates that we have about platforms like Twitter or Facebook or TikTok or any of the social media platforms that so many people are, well, kind of addicted to. How should these platforms be regulated? What should free speech and expression mean on those platforms, which we didn't have 10, 20 years ago? Do we have to rethink the order of free speech and expression in order to account for social media and all of the different iterations that we are learning so much about? That's where we want to continue the conversation here on Detroit Today. With a discussion not only of Elon Musk and his ambitions to own a big piece of the social media world, but how that connects to these other conversations that we're having about how social media should be shaping the way we talk to each other. How free speech and expression, really cherished values here in our country, should play out on social media platforms. Joining us to help think this through is Will O'Ramus. He writes about technology for the Washington Post and has been covering Elon Musk's bid for Twitter for some time. Will, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me on. So first, get us up to speed. Uh, Elon Musk offered to buy Twitter uh, about a month ago now, and now he's saying maybe he's going to back out of the deal. There are a couple of things that seem to have tripped him up here. Talk about where we are in the narrative of this saga. 
Yeah, it's been a lot of twists and turns. Elon Musk is now saying that he is concerned about the amount of bots on Twitter. So that's accounts on Twitter that are probably posting on there and liking things and retweeting things, but they they don't represent an actual individual human. They're being they're being controlled or programmed to retweet things or to like things in order to boost somebody else's numbers or clout or voice on the platform. They, uh, Twitter has said for some time now that they think about 5% of the daily active users they count in their public metrics might be bots. Uh, figuring out which 5% is not easy. <laughs> who's and, a bot and, then, and who's not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then, I mean, then, and then, you know, that number is, is an estimate because it's, it's very hard actually to determine what percentage are bots. We know that they're on there. We don't know how many. Musk is, is using the concern, his apparent concern over the number of bots on Twitter. It feels like he's using that as either leverage to try to negotiate the, the sale price down from what he agreed to, or maybe back out of the deal. And, and part of the suspected motivation there is that Twitter's stock and indeed the broader market are way down from the price that they were, from the values that they were when he first entered into this agreement. Hmm. There's also some question about Musk's ability to finance this deal uh, at that price as well. And that has to do with his core business or one of his core businesses, Tesla. Uh, uh, talk about talk about how he was going to come up with 44 or $45 billion and why he, he might not actually be able to do that. Yeah, so Musk is, is the world's richest person, as you mentioned. Um, he has a, a, a paper net worth well upwards of 200 billion, maybe upwards of 250 billion by some estimates. But of course, that's not all just cash in his pocket that he can hand over to Twitter. You know, that's tied up in assets like his stock in his company, Tesla, and his ownership of SpaceX and so on. So his plan to finance this deal of buying Twitter for $44 billion included selling a big chunk of his Tesla stock. And Tesla stock is, is extremely valuable now. I mean, it's, it's one of the most valuable stocks in the world. Um, he was going to sell a chunk of that to raise the cash. And then he also had lined up some outside investors to help him complete this purchase and to take what, what has been a publicly traded company on the stock market, you know, with shareholders that may include you and me or our retirement funds and, or that sort of thing, to take it private so that he can fully own it, maybe in partnership with these investors. But the, again, the market has gone down. The Tesla stock has gone significantly down since he entered into this deal. I think Tesla shareholders aren't thrilled by the fact that he seems to be spending so much time uh, on Twitter now instead of running the, the electric vehicle company. That's not even to mention all the other companies he's supposed to be running. Hmm. So um, I, I want to kind of back up here and go to the initial instinct that Elon Musk was indulging here. He wakes up one day and says, you know what? I'm going to buy Twitter. And maybe it wasn't quite that simple, but it did seem to come almost out of nowhere. Uh, talk about what is in his mind, I guess, at, at that point, and what he thought he might achieve uh, by, by spending that kind of money, by stretching himself the way that he would have to financially um, to do that. What, what, what is this all about? I think a few things are at play here. And first, let me stipulate that we don't know for sure what was in Elon Musk's mind. Of course. <laughs> and, and he won't. He doesn't talk to the press very much. Um, he's said a little bit about it, but you always kind of have to take his public statements with a little healthy skepticism because sometimes his public statements are earnest and other times they seem to be strategic. They're trying to achieve a goal, um, like manipulating a market, perhaps. Um, so one thing that I think is true about Elon Musk is that this is a guy whose life experience has taught him that he is brilliant and he can do things better than other people and that whatever he puts his mind to, he can do. And so he's done that with building rockets into space. He's done it with building electric vehicles when people said that couldn't be done. 
uh, he's made a career out of trying to do things people said couldn't be done. And he, he looks at Twitter. I mean, this is a site where he spends a lot of time, frankly. I mean, he's a, he's an, he's a Twitter addict. Mm-hmm. You know, you can see it by the amount he's on there posting and replying and liking things. Uh, and so he sees Twitter and, and he has some problems with how it's being run, it's particularly during COVID. He was he was sort of a, I won't say a COVID skeptic necessarily, but but he felt that COVID, the response to COVID was being overdone. And he got upset by Twitter and other social platforms, policies against what they called misinformation. He, he felt that they were censoring people who were just trying to, you know, express healthy doubt about the response to COVID. Um, in general, he has been uh, frustrated by the sort of progressive push for for more politically correct speech, um, and he, you know, he doesn't he doesn't like that. You know, he's he's he leans conservative these days. He said in the past he was independent. Now he's saying he'll vote Republican. But he's kind of anti woke. It is one of is a word that he uses, and so he doesn't like the idea that Twitter was uh, both a, a movement building platform for people who were trying to, to, to build a progressive agenda, but also that Twitter's uh, employees were uh, labeling speech as hate speech or, or harassment or, the, or abuse or that kind of thing, especially by people from the right. So he was frustrated with how Twitter was being run. He figures, I can do it better. He figures, look, I've got all the money in the world. Why don't I just take it over and fix this whole thing? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm talking with Will O'Ramus. He's a technology writer for The Washington Post and has been writing about Twitter and Elon Musk, this kind of dance that has uh, unfolded over the last month uh, in which Elon Musk has expressed his desire to own Twitter, said he would pay $44 billion for it. Uh, That deal is not yet done and does seem now to be in some jeopardy for uh, a number of, of reasons. Uh, we're talking about what would happen if Elon Musk did buy Twitter. Uh, what would that really change uh, on the platform? We're also talking about how that conversation connects to the broader conversation about social media, Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, Instagram, uh, whatever platform you choose. There are some real debates about how those platforms are uh, influencing Uh, free speech and expression. Uh, Also, how they protect free speech and expression. Um, These are all really new questions uh, in our culture, given the explosion of social media over the last decade or so. We weren't thinking about this kind of thing in the 2000s. And now it's hard to think of anything else when you talk about dialogue and debate. Uh, We want to hear from you during this conversation as well. What do you make of Elon Musk saying He's going to buy Twitter. Uh, Are you a Twitter user? Uh, Do you like it? Do you have some of the same concerns that Elon Musk has uh, expressed about Twitter and social media? Uh, Do you think that uh, we need to do more to make sure they protect free speech and expression? Um, uh, Also give us a call and let us know if you think we ought to be thinking, I guess, a little more broadly about the idea of the public square and how these social media platforms um, influence that public square, how they shape the public square. Are they the public square uh, right now? And does that mean that we ought to be thinking differently about the way that the government interacts with them? Um, As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313- 577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. We also want to hear from you if you think this is much ado about absolutely not very much. Uh, do you not care about uh, who owns Twitter? Uh, do you not really engage with social media? Do you feel, do you feel like uh, um, this is uh, a minority uh, concern uh, in in America, and that uh, there are better things that we ought to be spending our time thinking and talking about. Again, three one three five seven seven one zero one nine is the number on the phones, and you can go to social media uh, and put comments there as well. Um, before we get to our our callers, will I want to put some of those questions uh, uh, to you about how this fits into this? debate that we're having about free speech and, and, and these platforms. Um, if, if, if Elon Musk bought 
Twitter and um, and did change its policies radically, did allow a lot more speech than the current owners um, uh, are indulging. What would that what would that do or what effect would it have, I guess, on this this debate about uh, about free speech in these platforms? You know, the government has been, I think, kind of sitting back and and thinking about how it should be responding and and how it might need to regulate these platforms. Would Elon Musk's entry into the conversation accelerate the government's interest uh, uh, or or would it just uh, would it just unleash more experimentation? I mean, would it would, would we see other platforms also uh, thinking about free speech uh, in different ways? Yeah, there's a lot to a lot to unpack there. I think that we actually already are seeing experimentation in social networks. So some of the dissatisfaction, particularly from the political right in the United States with the policies of Facebook and Twitter and other platforms has led entrepreneurs to create what they call free speech platforms. There's Rumble, there's Parler, there's Donald Trump's own platform, Truth Social. There's quite a few of these. There's not a shortage of options. The pattern that we've seen play out so far is that when somebody establishes a new network, usually it's kind of on, along the lines of Twitter. It's usually like a Twitter, but it's supposed to be a place where you can say anything and they won't censor you. Very quickly, the platform becomes overrun with spam, with pornography, with people saying the most offensive things they can just because they can get away with it, right? Like, why, why do you go to that kind of platform unless it's because you want to say stuff mm-hmm. that you can't say elsewhere? Mm-hmm. And so the platform just becomes this awful experience. I mean, like, nobody really <laughs> nobody really turns out to enjoy being surrounded by the most offensive and loudest <laughs> people who got kicked out of the, you know, who got kicked out of the respectable place. Um, <laughs> and so uh, they don't do very well. I mean, they're not, you know, I, I'm not, I think it's too early to write them off entirely, uh, um, certainly Trump has managed to get lots of headlines for Truth Social and has some people over there, but uh, they just, none of them have really caught on beyond a sort of terminally online uh, conservative fringe of the public. Um, and so it would actually be really interesting to see what would happen to Twitter if Elon Musk were to try to take it in that direction. Now, again, his public statements indicate that that's what he wants to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people who have been following social media for years and who have seen this pattern play out again and again are are you know, skeptical. They think that once Musk saw, you know, if he were to try that, once he saw the results, he would sort of realize his mistake potentially, or maybe he'd be fine with it. You know, and Musk is a bit of a troll himself online. He likes getting a rise out of people, right? He likes owning the libs, so to speak. Uh, mm-hmm. And so maybe he would enjoy Twitter going, you know, going back to kind of going back to its roots in a way. I mean, Twitter many years ago prided itself on being, quote, the free speech wing of the free speech party, right? It was the place where you could say anything. And that, that was why it could play a role in the Arab Spring, because you know, activists could say stuff and the regime couldn't stop them. And they could organize and, you know, but but then over the years, as it became clear that Twitter was just a really uh, kind of a scary place for people to be because of all the all the harassment and the name calling and the doxing and all that kind of thing, they they kind of tightened up the reins. So uh, I don't know, you know, would would they go back to the would they go back to the beginning uh, again and start that cycle all over if Musk took it over? Um, It it is hard to say. I mean, one thing we do know is that he has said he would bring Donald Trump back to the platform. Um, We know he was annoyed in in, a couple of years ago when Twitter banned a a conservative parody outlet called the Babylon Bee. I'm sure Mm -hmm. he would bring them back. He's talked to their publisher. I think he would bring back lots of the people who've gotten booted. And I think we've already seen, in fact, the Washington Post did a report recently looking at the data that conservative accounts have seen a boost in their followers since Musk's bid to buy Twitter began. And liberal accounts have seen their followers leave. Hmm. The site. So already the site is shifting rightward. Um, and now how far it would go, whether the left would flee entirely, maybe we would start to see uh, left, you know, uh, liberal versions of, of Twitter spring up, right? Like the, the liberal equivalent of the rumbles and parlors and truth socials. Hmm. Hmm. Okay, coming up next, we're going to continue this conversation with Will Ramis about Elon Musk and Twitter and free speech and social media. 
We will get to you and your calls on uh, the phones as well as on social media. Frank and Livonia, Allen and Pleasant Ridge, Jason in Macomb County, you'll be up first. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number. And you can always go to Facebook or to Twitter, which is the subject of our conversation. Uh, Put uh, your comments there and we'll work you into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today. I'm Stephen Henderson, and our guest is Will Ramis, a technology writer for The Washington Post. He's been writing about Twitter and Elon Musk. Uh, will Elon Musk end up buying Twitter? Will he change the platform in a way uh, that, uh, that we really notice in terms of uh, how it respects free speech, uh, free exchange of ideas? Also, how does that connect to these other conversations we're having about social media platforms? Uh, we want to hear from you during the conversation as well. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Uh, you can also go to Facebook or Twitter, put comments there, and uh, we can include you in the conversation that way. Um, uh, let's uh, start today with Frank in Livonia. Frank, welcome to the show. Hey, good morning. Um, I'd you know, just like to say, you know, when you talk about uh, you know, social media being like a town square, I think a better comparison would be a grocery store. Uh, you know, you know, we, we have an exchange of value, something really important, and they track, you know, your information, you know, what your browsing history say, uh, not just the ads that they make. Uh, you know, that's part of their business model. But, you know, if you were to think about a grocery store, you trust them when you go down to buy, you know, Dearborn sausage uh, hot dogs. Uh, you trust that grocery store to have actually bought it from Dearborn sausage, uh, not out of the trunk of somebody's car. God only knows where it came from. Uh, you know, you think about when they had the big Tylenol uh, poisoning thing years ago. I mean, the grocery stores, and you know, when they found out about it, they got it off the shelf. But what if they would have just left it on the shelf? And, you know, what if that grocer said, you know, put this stuff out there as being pure product? So I think the, you know, the whole social media thing is, you know, we're not looking at it as a product and as an exchange of value. And, uh, you know, so people that are putting stuff out there, um, I, you know, they cannot be held responsible directly because they can run their mouth any way they want to. But the platform itself is making money on that. They need to then be treated like the grocer and be held liable for not having pure product on the shelf. It's really, it's I a, think that's a, yeah, go ahead, Frank. Well, I guess, you know, and I, and I think that's the thing is that the, you know, the, the social media was protected, you know, by that Clinton era law that, uh, you know, gave them, you know, certain kinds of protections. But, you know, it's like, you know, the, when you look at how simple the Truth in Advertising uh, Act is, uh, and, and even politicians can't hide behind that either because, you know, the, this freedom of speech thing, because, you know, they're asking for our vote. That's an extremely valuable thing. It has a value much beyond money. So, you know, I think that they can be held liable for, you know, yeah. lying to us or falsifying or, you know, sure. delivering product self. Yeah. That's my uh, Frank, uh, Frank, I, I really love the, the analogy you're making there. It's a really different way to think about, uh, about social media. Will, I wonder if you can uh, catch us up on the debate about how to regulate social media companies. Frank says, look, they're putting a product out there. They ought to be held as liable for that product as a grocery it would be uh, would be held doesn't really work that way um but but talk about the 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 push and pull i guess of the the discussion about how and whether to hold social media uh, platforms more responsible for what happens on them yeah i, I like the grocery analogy it's creative i mean i see that analogy as being a little more apt for a platform like amazon right where it's the a platform where just about anybody can sell stuff through Amazon, mm-hmm. um, and you know you can you can make the case that there's that there's concern about the fact that some of those products aren't authentic, and you know should Amazon be held more responsible for that? 
But I think when we talk about social media platforms, it's it's not as simple as saying, is it or is it not the public square? I mean, first of all, the public square is, is kind of a, a murky concept, right? Like none of us ever grew up with an actual public square where people held civil political debates all the time. I mean, it's a kind of a it's kind of a mythical thing to start with. I mean, I think you know to the extent there is a public square in American life, it's uh, it's a mixture of things. It's many things. It's it's the you know the floor speeches in Congress. It's uh, yes, it's politicians and the media on Twitter. It's uh, it's the, the media more broadly. I mean, there are lots of things that come, that make up the public square. There's local institutions, um, but I do think social media is part of it. It's a part of it, and it's a, it's a private company. Um, you know, Facebook, Twitter. They're they're out to make money, and yet the product they offer is something that is used by influential people to shape discourse and to get their messages across and and to to test and focus group their messaging. So uh, I think it does matter to society what people say on there. Um, I, I think, you know, that your caller was referring, I believe, to Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Mm-hmm. And this is a provision that said that was early in the development of the internet. And it, it cuts two ways. So it allows the platforms to not be held uh, liable or not be considered the speaker of the stuff that their users say, right? So if I post something on Twitter, Section 230 says that Twitter, if you want to sue me for that, you can't sue Twitter as though Twitter was the speaker. I was the speaker, not Twitter. Um, but what it also does is that it allows Twitter to moderate content as it sees fit. That's part of what 230 does as well. So you see people from both the left and the right saying, well, we should get rid of these special protections for the internet companies. We actually don't know how that would play out in the courts. It could be that they would, you know, that they would stop moderating altogether and hope for, you know, they would try to become more like a common carrier, like a phone company where anybody could say anything. Um, or maybe they would be, you know, they would really tighten the ship, as your caller suggests, and, and get much more careful about their moderation of content so that they couldn't be sued. It would be a, a mess. We could say that for sure. <laughs> I, I, I really think that, um, the you know, a lot of this debate comes down to whether you think these social media platforms essentially are publishers of the content that um, that's on them, or uh, if they are carriers, as you point out, uh, kind of like a telephone company. You know, you know, if somebody calls you on the phone and and says something really awful to you, um, you don't you don't get mad at AT and T uh, for for conveying that call, and that's a really critical question that I think it's really it's still really hard to answer because it's it, social media is not really either or it's kind of both yeah i, I think you're right it's a hybrid if i can just quickly share my perspective i mean I, I think that the problem with thinking of social media companies like a common carrier like a phone company is that they don't they are not just a host of information I mean, they they compete on how they curate that information, how they present it to you, all these features like you know retweets and likes, they have turned discourse into a game really, and they they have made it engaging and addictive to keep you coming back. And they they have algorithms that decide which posts you see and which you don't. I think you know that is a fundamentally different thing from just being a, a phone company, and that is is part of why that they they find content moderation is critical to what they do because otherwise the algorithms would just you know, make all the work stuff go viral and, and it would be, you know, even more of a, of a cesspool than it is today. Mm. Again, Frank, uh, really love the, the call and the, the provocative uh, analogies there. Let's go next to Jason in Macomb County. Jason, welcome to the show. You there, Jason? Let's go next to Jason. Jason, you got to turn your radio down, bud. Are you are you there? This is Jason. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to mention that maybe uh, one of the things that um, kind of Frank was talking about there, because uh, the aggravation is being put out on Twitter, you know, the celebrities are famous. Uh, they need to be aware of the fact that they are famous and that people are going to follow them. And their information should be uh, factual. And don't be spreading lies out there. You know, Elon Musk tweeted the other day about how there's a, a uh, asteroid or a comet coming toward Earth. Like, well, yeah, NASA did too, but they said also that it was uh, not going to hit Earth. Mm-hmm. People are going to look at that and say, okay, well, we're all going to die. You know, it's that kind of stuff is is, is um, needs to be uh, noticed and say, hey, you know, I don't, um, I know I'm doing here, but yet I need to maybe 
expand on that a little bit more or watch my put. Uh, the other thing regarding earlier was talking about COVID, uh, things being said about COVID, they're fake. Mm-hmm. That kind of stuff people are going to read. They're going to be taking it in and, and realizing it, telling their friends, and you're going to have all these lies spread out in the world. Uh, that kind of stuff needs to be uh, moderated for a reason. Yeah. I think that one of the things that maybe should be done is have terms contract where people sign up with Twitter that says, hey, this is what we want you not to put in here on our platform. And if you don't follow this, then there'll be consequences. Yeah. Uh, Jason, I, I, I really appreciate the call and, and you, your perspective on this. Uh, well, let's talk about fact and lies um, and and whether there are, I guess, brighter lines that could be drawn about the, uh, you know, the proliferation of falsehoods on on platforms like Twitter or, or other social media. Is there an easier way, as, as I think Jason is suggesting, to just say, look, uh, you're going to be held responsible if you say something that's not true, even if it doesn't uh, rise to the level of, of course, libel, right? If I say something untrue about somebody, there are laws to to, to deal with that. But if I say, you know, there's an asteroid and it's going to hit uh, hit Earth tomorrow or it's coming this way and it, it might hit Earth, that, eh, that's not true. But I, I really can't be sued for that. Um, what, what What is the standard that we should be thinking about? That's right. The First Amendment in the United States protects our ability to lie, frankly. We can say things that aren't true and we're not going to get put in jail for them. There's good reasons for that because who decides what's true, right? If you have an authoritarian regime uh, in Russia, for instance, right now, if you call their war in Ukraine a war instead of using their preferred term, which is a special military operation, you can be put in jail for that. We don't want that. (laughs) Very few Americans want that. We like the First Amendment. We don't want to be sued or jailed for, for things we say, even if they're deemed a lie. Now, when we say it on social media, that's a different matter. Uh, It's not about getting prosecuted by the government. The question is, will the social media platforms allow us to lie or not? And about what things and how will they determine whether we're lying or not? And that's something they've been wrestling with over the past five to seven years. It's interesting. I I asked Facebook way back in 2014 or 2015, they had these viral viral misinformation about, um, you know, miracle cures for cancer going around, you know, these sort of hoaxes. It wasn't yet a political dimension, but there were lots of uh, hoaxes about how vaccines can, can, you know, give you all, all these illnesses and stuff. I said, do you ever think about, you know, maybe trying to make your social network a place where lies don't spread so easily? And they said, huh, no, not really. That's never something, that's something we really thought about. You know, they just felt their job was to, to connect people and let people say what they wanted and not to intervene at all. And then the price of that over the years became clear. I mean, it became clear that the way these social platforms work, they actually reward lies and conspiracy theories. Uh, You know, people who will tell you what you want to hear, even if it's not true, do really well on these platforms. So so they found that in order to be completely overrun by lies, they actually did have to start trying to police at least certain narrow types of misinformation. So even today, you can lie on Twitter, you won't get booted off. But if you lie about a few specific things, if you lie about the efficacy of code vaccines, Mm -hmm. if you lie about the, the election or how to vote, those things can get you suspended from Twitter. So they're carving up narrow categories where they say, these are lies we're not going to tolerate because they're specifically harmful to society, as opposed to all the other lies that, look, we're not going to be in the business of trying to figure out whether every one of the 10 million things people post on here today is true or false. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, Will, before we have to end the show, I want to cast you a little bit in the role of prognosticator here. Uh, is Elon Musk really going to buy Twitter? Is that all going to work out, the, all the kinks that have popped up uh, in the last few weeks? Um, or, or is this all just going to collapse? And then uh, give me a, a, a prediction about what happens if he, if, if he does uh, end up uh, as, as the owner. 
Uh, you know, <laughs> you know there are a lot of topics. There's a lot of topics. We journalists, we journalists try to be sort of you know balanced and objective, particularly <laughs> in the news section. And but there's a lot of topics where if you ask a journalist kind of after hours, what do you really think? They can just tell you, well, yeah, I think this is going to happen. But honestly, with Elon Musk, I do not know. I don't think anybody knows. I'm not even sure Elon Musk knows if he's definitely going to complete this deal or not. It's funny the tables have turned now. I mean, first he was trying to buy the company, and Twitter was trying to fight off his bid. Now it kind of feels like he's trying to back out or, or leverage the price down and Twitter's trying to hold him to the bit. They've turned the tables. They're like, no, oh, you said you were going to buy us for this price. You got to stick with it. I have no idea what's going to happen here. Uh, I think, you know, what, what seems clear at the moment is that he doesn't want to buy it for the price he agreed to buy it. How that plays out, nobody knows. If he does buy it, I think we will continue to see a rightward shift on the platform. I think we'll see a huge exodus of existing Twitter employees because these, these are all people who have bought into the current idea that Twitter should be somewhat responsible for what people say on there and that it should be somewhat responsible for trying to steer us toward more healthy conversations and truthful discourse. And if you get an owner who comes in and says, no, it's going to be anything goes, laissez-faire, free speech, all those people, the mission that they had is gone. So they're going to leave. The company's going to be in tatters. It's going to go through a really rough patch. Uh, conservatives are going to rejoice. Liberals will probably flee. From there, whether Musk adjusts course and kind of steers it back toward a more moderated platform or whether he keeps going down that path and, and Twitter just becomes a sort of more wild west place again, I just don't know. Yeah. Okay. Will Oramus, uh, technology writer for The Washington Post. It was really great to have you here to help us uh, sort through all of these issues around Elon Musk and Twitter. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, speaking of healthy, healthy discourse, I appreciate that you take the time to delve into topics like this. Thanks. That's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we're going to talk with prize-winning photojournalist Salwan Georges about his work and his experiences on the ground in Ukraine. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow. <laughs>